Thank you, Alex. We're going to continue our series in First Timothy. And just by way of introduction, I want to make mention of the fact that I think it was three weeks ago, the Australian Wallabies rugby team made a massive comeback in world-class rugby. Over the last couple of years, though, their second-rate performance has really shown how much they have been off their game. But that changed three weeks ago when they had a victory over the reigning world champions, the All Blacks. And so we can ask, and I asked, what is it that caused this massive turnaround on the field? How did a second-rate, can I say, rugby team turn itself around to beat the best of the best? There may be many reasons, but one who loves and used to play rugby myself, one reason that stood out to me is that the Wallabies simply went back to good rugby basics. They moved away from relying on their fancy set pieces and relying on one or two key skilled players on the field. And they returned to the basics of, of consistent attack and defend and they executed that on the field as a unified team. And they won. I say this as an illustration because this is what the church at Ephesus needed to do at the time Timothy wrote this letter to their pastor, Timothy. Of course, not on the rugby field, but in the church. This church needed to focus on the fundamentals, the basics of being a God-glorifying church. They needed to do that in order to, to execute their God-designed impact in the world around them and to one another within that local assembly. You see, the church was being troubled. They were being troubled with peripheral stuff that was affecting their testimony and affecting their unified function as a church. And we have looked at some of these things. They had allowed false teachers to come in and persuade some with their false teaching and their myths and their speculations. And also some of the men in the church were really slack in their public prayers and when they did pray, their prayers were very biased. Some of the ladies as we have looked at, really pushed their freedom in Christ and they went too far and went all out and used the church like a fashion catwalk. There was also a lack of understanding on the different roles of men and women in the local church. The qualifications of the leadership needed to be sorted out. And Paul addresses all these matters in chapter 1 to 3 up to verse 14 where we are today. And so I want to read those two verses. 
or three verses that I'm going to be looking at. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and or chapter 3 I should say and verse 14. And this is what Paul wrote to Timothy. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so he writes this part of the letter, and he hones in on the very fundamentals and basics of a God-glorifying church. And in the mix of all these issues that was going on in this church at Ephesus at the time, what was happening was all this peripheral stuff was being allowed to overwhelm the basic fundamentals of the church and its mission. The true purpose and reason for the church to exist, it was getting lost. The gospel was being diminished. And can we say the church was off its game? Many things can cause this, right? Even in the church today. In our day, we see multiple ministries, for example, from fun runs to Jesus, to skateboard ministries, to Christmas in the park, to a thousand other community-focused so-called gospel efforts. But don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that these things are all bad. They can be good and they can show a real compassion and they can be a way of connecting with people but more than often I have seen over the years more than often in the busyness of these secondary matters of the church the fundamentals of the truths this is what happens the fundamental truths of the gospel and the primary mission of the church gets reduced and like the wallabies dare I say who began to function as a united and effective team when they used the basics of rugby, they became effective. You know what? The local church must never lose sight of the fundamental mission, the fundamental uh, mission or reasons for the mission for the church. You see, it's only when we have these basic fundamental truths of the gospel, it's only when we have them always before us in our hearts and in our minds will the local church function as a united, effective team that glorifies God. And so this is exactly what the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy about here. Now Ephesus was a good church, a very good church. But it seems to be, you read the, the, the letter to the Ephesians that he, Paul particularly wrote, but it seems to be that this was a church that easily was sidetracked. Steve has taken us through and reminded us in the first letter to the, in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, it was a good church... But one of the issues was it had lost its first love. It had been sidetracked, even at that stage, with a whole lot of peripheral things. It had lost its first love. It was still functioning as a church. It seemed to be a church that was easily sidetracked. 
And so that's where we are in this letter to Timothy. But these verses that we have read this morning also are a turning point in this letter. Because up until now, as we've gone over verse by verse, Paul has given positive instructions to Timothy concerning this church. But as we'll see from chapter 4 onwards, he continues to speak to Timothy and write to Timothy, but he gives now from chapter 4 onwards many negative warnings. But our verses under consideration this morning deal primarily with the fundamentals. Firstly, of the church's mission, and then secondly, of the church's message. But today we're going to spend all the time, I was going to do this in one message, but uh, I wanted to major on the first one. We're going to spend all our time on the church's mission, and God willing, uh, next week we'll look at the church's message. So the first point today I want you to consider is how to conduct yourself in the household of God. The section begins in verse 14 and, be, and the beginning of 15 telling us why Paul is writing his, this letter to Timothy. And he states this, let me read it to you again. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Paul is telling us all here, the purpose of writing this letter. In other words, this is the key to understanding what this whole letter is all about. It's a very key, it's a very key verse. And so we can ask, oh, what is the purpose? Well, Paul writes, so that we will know how to act or conduct or behave ourselves in the local church. After all, this is the very heartbeat of Paul's instructions to Timothy. And as we look at that verse again, you will see, so you will know. That's singular, the you there. This is specifically addressed to Timothy, but he doesn't switch. So you will know, and then he says, how one ought to conduct himself. So even though he's addressing Timothy personally as the pastor of that church, it's so one will know. There's an inference that this is very more than Timothy. It includes the whole assembly. And so his instructions so far have covered many different aspects which he refers to when he says, I am writing these things to you. And we have covered some of these things in the first three chapters and we're going to cover many more, God willing, in chapters 4 to 6. But at the heart of his concern in writing about all these things is that the local church would live in light and function in the light of this fundamental truth. And what is that truth? He tells you right here in verse 15, it is a truth that the local church is the household of God. That's the truth. That's, this is a fundamental. If we lose sight of this, we're going to get caught up in all the peripherals and lose the game. So what is that truth? He tells us right here, it's the household of God in verse 15. And this is a metaphor, by the way. It's a word picture, the household of God. And what it does, it highlights how the local church belongs to God and it is his household and believers are members or children of his household. It's a beautiful metaphor, actually. But I really want this to sink in. I really want us to get a grip, a fresh grip of this today because this is an amazing truth that many, sad to say, underrate and undervalue and treat far too lightly. And the truth is that the local church is the house or the household, the family of God. 
This is where he chooses to dwell and place his name. And that is why it is vital that we live according to his standards as revealed in the scriptures. You see that God has set standards for his children who belong to his household. It's a bit like how every home here that you come from and that you may be the head of that home, every home um, will have standards. You come to my home and, um, and some of those standards will be different than the standards you have in your home. That's okay. There will be different expectations in my home than it will be in yours. But every home will have standards that are acceptable conduct or not acceptable and that is exactly the same for God's house. Exactly the same. You know, I rem- well remember, just trying to illustrate this a little. As you know, we've had five children. We still have five children and many grandchildren. But raising five children was a mission in itself. And um, one that my wife and I endeavoured to take very seriously and do in the, uh, in the ways of the Lord. But I often remember my wife having to deal with some of our children when they played up in church. And it was usually when I was preaching way back then. By the way, as a footnote here, you parents, don't allow your children to dictate the terms of their behaviour in church, okay? I love children in church. They should be in church. Families need to be in church. You are the parent. Train them at home to sit still, keep quiet, sing, listen, no matter how frustrating it is. We know how frustrating it is. We had five of them. And it's really testing. Don't let them rule the roost. You're in charge. You're going to be held responsible. It's responsible for that. And so families should be in church as part of God's family. They're his household. Now, getting back to my original point. Anyway, my wife was, um, when necessary, would take out our culprit child to some isolated area of the church where the congregation could not hear the screams as discipline for their misbehaving was being carried out. I remember one occasion as though she was walking back up the aisle. Don't hit me, mummy! Don't hit me, mummy! Don't hit me, mummy! That little, that child was a rebel. He knew that he was, he was, uh, yeah, anyway. But anyway, sometimes their misbehavior earned another round of discipline from me when they got home on odd occasions. Not all the time. They didn't need that kind of discipline, but sometimes they did. All this is to say that usually during this time of discipline, words something like this would have been spoken to them by my wife or myself. You do not behave in God's house like that. You got that? You see, the standard was set. Conduct over and above the norm was demanded. And so what I'm getting at here is, if showing proper appreciation for the place where God meets his people is right and correct, and I think you would all agree with that, surely it is also appropriate for our conduct to be of the highest order owing to the truth that God's gathered people are his household. We are the household of God. Forget about the bricks and mortar around here. God is not too interested in that, as a matter of fact. 
He's interested in people because we, the people, are God's household. In other words, we are not just guests here. We're not just visitors who come to meet God. We are not mere spectators like Israel was. You know what Israel did uh, from a distance. They watched as Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. We're not like that, spectators. You see, it's far more profound, far more profound. We are people, we are the home, the household, the dwelling place of God where we gather like this this morning, exactly like this. I wonder if we really appreciate the solemnity of that. When we gather, God meets with us, yes, absolutely. But we, the redeemed of the Lord, are his household. The assembly of God's people is God's temple. We are the saints of the living God, the set-apart ones, and it's amongst us and in us that he dwells and he chooses to place his name. We serve in his house, folks. It's not ours. Hence, the church is special, so this is not a time for casual, she'll be right, attitude or behavior. God's people are the body of Christ, we're told in Ephesians 4. So can I say we dare not treat Christ's body, God's household, as ordinary, ordinary because we're not ordinary, right? That's not to pump you up with pride, but we're not ordinary because when we gather like this, we are God's household. So we dare not neglect other members of this divine household. There's a challenge. We dare not treat God's household or one another, because that's what it is, as secondary. We dare not attend and serve in this household only when it suits us, if nothing else crops up. We dare not do that. We dare not behave in God's house like that. Paul emphasizes the same truth, by the way, in Ephesians 2 verse 9. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That's what he means there. You see, in the Old Testament times, the emphasis over and over was on a special location, a geographical location or a physical location. And remember Jacob, you know, when he had that climbing ladder experience in a dream and, and, um, or saw angels descending and ascending and descending. And his, the result of that was that Jacob was an absolute awe of this literal geographical location. And he said in Genesis 28 verse 17, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. Moses was the same. He built the tabernacle. This was a special tent in the wilderness. And he built it according to the commands of God. And, and the tabernacle itself became the place, the focal point of God's presence with his people. It was not that the God of heaven could be contained in a tent. God is bigger than that, right? Just as he's bigger than any building that we are in or that we may need in the future. That we will need in the future, can I say. But it was a special place where he manifested his nearness to his people Israel and he manifested his love to them, his favor to them. It was a place where Israel, his people, came face to face with him. They met with him, they encountered him, they praised God's name and they reverentially feared him, they heard his word, they enjoyed communion with him in this literal physical place. It was a focal point. 
Then after the tabernacle, you know what happened? The par excellence in the world of God's house came to be. The temple was built. And that was where God dwelt. We read much about the temple in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the emphasis is this. It's no longer about a spiritual location. There's no longer a tent or a temple somewhere. It's wherever the people of God are gathered as a local congregation of believers in Jesus Christ. Whether it's in a beautiful sanctuary or whether it's in a school building or whether it's in a rented hall or out in the open under a tree like we may be next October. We're still the household of God. That's the point. You see, when the people of God are gathered on the Lord's day to meet with him, they are God's house. I'm going to repeat this over and over again. I wanted to get in. We are God's house people, folks. And Paul is saying, why is it important for the local church that, that we obey all of these instructions that you've heard thus far and that you will hear uh, and from chapters 4 to 6? Why is that important? This is why. Because you're God's house. And this is a profound truth, folks, that many Christians treat far too lightly. We can treat God's household as something that belongs to us. And so what happens then when we have that wrong thinking and understanding, we set our own personal standards and we have our own personal opinions on, on what should go on and what shouldn't go on and how we participate in it and, and even how we attend it and treat God's house, how we value it and how we treat one another, how we respond to its leaders and how we treat the mission. We have wrong attitudes and thinking when we do not value God's house for what it really is. Dear saints, this morning we are the house of God and that demands that we understand the very first principle of a Christian life is to realize that we are God's house and it's not ours. It's not ours. And because of that, our opinions are secondary. It's God's opinions and ideas that we value. God's house belongs to God see I'm sure that if we understood and took this truth on board authentically the problems and issues that so often hinder ministry of the church they'd be solved overnight and so Paul says why is it that I'm writing to you I'm writing to you because I want you to understand that you are God's house it's true that when God was in the midst of his people Israel in the wilderness you know what it was kind of painful for them it was kind of painful for them. You know why? Because it had to be different. If they obeyed the instructions of the Lord and, and, and the fact that, they, that, that God was there, they, they had to be different. The living God was with them every step of the way. And so Paul is saying the same thing here. You are God's house. So you don't act like pagans in the world. Not only, we don't only talk about church here, it will have an effect on, on, on what we do and who we are outside the confines of the gathered church. So wherever we are, whenever, is to be a reflection, a good reflection on God's house of whom you are. And of course that can be in the reverse, but dare I say, don't put yourself in harm's way of being disciplined by the Lord. 
We also understand from this that we dare not bring in anything or introduce anything into God's house that emulates the world. We see that happening big time in church today, right? The argument basically is in order to win the world, you've got to be like the world. And so kind of there's a, that's one of those peripheral things that they get lost in and they get lose the side of the mission. But yes, you've got God in your midst, even here this morning. You are the house of God. And so that changes everything. It does. It must. It has to change everything. So why should we love and appreciate the household of God? We see in verse, 10, verse 15 that Paul continues by explaining the importance of the local church and he makes it very clear that believers need to have a proper estimation and a love for the local church. Notice what he says. He says, I write so that you will know how you ought to, one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You see that? So what Paul wants here is us to appreciate the nature of the local church or to say it another way, Paul wants us to appreciate what the local church really is. And he is thinking of the local church here. The local group of gathered believers, wherever they may be. It's not the professing church as a whole as the total church here it's the local church he has in mind and so he wants us to get a grip of why the local church is so amazing and he does that by zeroing in on two qualities of the church and so we have seen how Paul first calls the church the house or the household of God but he's not finished yet right he's not finished yet he further defines the church with two more descriptions in verse 15 and first he says that the assembly is the church of the living God or it's better translated, the living God's church. That is a better translation. Because in the original, there's no definitive in front of the church. And so this puts the emphasis on the owner, the master of the church, rather than on the family members. No definite article before the church. So here he is speaking about the living God's church. Now, Speaking about the living God's church in Ephesus would have resonated strongly with these ancient believers, especially the Jewish ones, which were, there were many of them in that church. Because the description living God, the title living God, is emphasized over and over again in the Old Testament. Just to quote a couple, Joshua for a start, he told Israel that God would go before them and he would rout the pagans from the promised land and that in season Joshua 3.10, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. You all know David with a sling, you remember? And one of the reasons why he went out there with that sling and faced the giant Goliath that day was he was, at a, he was real angry. And the scriptures tell us that his righteous anger was all to do with how dare this man, Goliath, taunt, listen to this, the armies of the living God. That's what it says. Further on, the psalmist could say in 84 verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
And so here, Paul emphasizes the same living God, the same all-powerful, holy, just, loving, merciful, and wrathful living God, and that he, this living God, is the Lord of the local church. So that would have resonated with them. But this description of the church would have further resonated with the Ephesians owing to the kind of cultural and worldviews that were dominant at that time which are not too different from our day and age, just with a, a different, different clothes on, can we say. You see, the ancient world of the Ephesians was rampant with idol worship. And amidst all these dead pieces of ornately sculptured stone that they were worshipped as gods, amidst all this was this beautiful group of believers who worship the living God as in the alive forevermore Lord Jesus Christ. They were like a beacon. They were like poles apart. They were like an opposite to what was around them. Here was all these dead pieces of stone and scripture often speaks about the idols being but dead pieces of stone but here was a group of believers like a beacon amidst all this dead pagan idolatry they were shining forth because they worshipped and shining forth in the fact that they worshipped their living God you see folks and until we appreciate and value the assembly as the living God's church in a dead-to-God world, because that's what we live. The world at large is dead to God. Until we appreciate that, we will only ever dabble with peripherals and we will never be empowered and motivated by the church's mission and its message. And then he goes on and he gives a second definition of the local church. He calls the church a pillar in support of the truth. You see that? Again, this is another metaphor, a word picture, and this would not have been lost to the Ephesians. Why? Because the whole city back then was full of marble and stone pillars. Who's been to ancient Ephesus? Jordan, did you go to ancient Ephesus? Sorry. You can go there today. I did some years ago, and there's pillars everywhere of what's left of them. Some still remain. And they would have known what pillars were about. And you can see these ancient marble pillars with carved out figures. They lined the streets with a pillar of their hero on, with a hero in war or hero whatever, and they kind of worshipped these, these pillars. But marble pillars were used for both decorative and structural purposes, of course. But when it comes to pillars, more specifically, when it comes to Ephesus, Way back around about 500 BC, they built a temple. And it was destroyed, and they rebuilt it again and destroyed, and it was about three or four times before it was kind of completely annihilated and hiliated into about 500 AD. But during Paul's time, and you can read about this temple in Acts 19, it was a temple built to the goddess Diana or Artemis. When visiting the site some years ago, where only ruins remain, and actually they've just put one pillar up. And I always remember right on top of the pillar was this massive big bird's nest with this massive 
crow sitting in it and it kind of pooed all over it and it was all down. I said it was quite fitting for what it was. But when visiting this ancient site, even though there's only ruins, I could not help but be impressed what this once massive and beautiful edifice would have commanded. And actually, they put a model together, and I've just got something up there. This is what it was. And William Barclay has, describes it this way, and he says, One of its features were its pillars. It contained 127 pillars, and every one of them was a gift of a king. All were made of marble, and some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold, end quote. And so beside each pillar being gifted from a different king, we know that there was a primary purpose for those pillars and that was, of course, to hold up and support the roofing structure. You see, this word support here in the New Testament is only used once in the New Testament and it refers to a, a structure, a pillar, that's vital uh, for a foundation that rests upon it. It's vital. So in using this metaphor, what Paul does is he wants to emphasize that the church, like the ancient pillars of time and in this temple and all throughout Ephesus, the church is the support and the vital foundation for what to rest upon, to hold up what? The truth. The truth. So here we see that the local church's primary fundamental purpose is to be the pillar and support of truth, God's truth, folks, gospel truth. In other words, the church does not produce truth, although many churches think they have that prerogative. The church does not produce truth. It does not develop truth. It does not define truth. And might I say, it only ever alters truth at the cost of divine judgment, which is rampant in many of our churches today, especially in the moral area, or even in the theological area, where once upon a time the Bible, the Scriptures were the inspired, authoritative text from God, Scriptures from God, Word from God. Many churches don't hold that now. I know people who call themselves Christian and they just completely now discount the first 12 books of Genesis as myth and, and not really true. And so at their own peril, they've changed truth. So the local church is God's pillar and support of the truth. And that truth is God's, of course, divine revelation, which includes the gospel and all the instructions for Christian faith. And here is a solemn responsibility of the local church laid down. It's clear as a bell. Here it is. Here's one of those basic fundamental missions. We are to be immovable, unshakable at upholding and being God's foundation, his support of truth in our community and in the world. That's what we're called to be. That's our fundamental mission. And if we lose sight of that, we're going to go astray. We're going to go astray. God does not call Bible schools or seminaries or even mission organizations to be the pillar in support of truth. No, it's God's household. That's our job. That's our responsibility. The first of all, before evangelism, before everything else, if we are not upholding and supporting the truth, evangelism will be watered down and weak 
Evangelism is vital. It is one of the missions of the church, but this is primary. This is fundamental. This is basic. So what now? Let's understand that although this is a collective responsibility of the gathered church, you know what? Upholding the truth as a church will not happen if we are not individually committed to this basic fundamental duty. You get that? So it's not just for the elders to uphold the truth and be a support and the pillar of the truth. It's, it's just not one or two when you can sort of sit on the side and hang back. No, 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 no. This is the household of God's responsibility. Just as there is no room for lone ranger Christians, you know, those ones that say, all I need is Jesus in my Bible kind of thing, there is also no room for individuals to be indifferent and neglect their responsibility in the collective church in God's house. So how do we contribute individually to this collective mission? How do we do that? How do we contribute to this church in that collective mission? I would suggest we begin by valuing one another as members of the body of Christ. That's a good place to start. Why? Because you need, as you need each part of your physical body to function effectively, as we get older, we kind of miss those members that don't function like they used to and we start breaking down. So as we need each part of our physical bodies to function effectively, we need one another to be effective in this mission. Amen? We also need one another as encouragement. I love the encouragement. I only wish there was more jumping up to their feet. Praise the Lord. I read a verse this week. It was such an encouragement. They sit down. We need one another for encouragement. We need to see and share in one another's lives. We need to see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of one another to encourage us to love and good deeds. That's what the Scripture tells us. We need to be reading the Word to one another. We need to be hearing the Word of God together so to believe and to grow together. How poor and how bad it would be if only one side of our body grew and the other didn't. It's a malfunction. It's a horrible idea. Same too for the body of Christ. We need to be learning and growing together. You see, because it's only together that any local church will serve the Lord as a pillar and support effectively as we apply these basics. But as a church, we as a church are the dwelling place or the household of God. And so we here at NCC, it's the little church, even in this city, along with every other Bible-believing, Christ-exalting people who are gathered Lord's Day after Lord's Day, where those who are committed to one another in membership and local congregation, you know what? It's there that God dwells. And my prayer is that not one of us dare underestimate this amazing truth. Let's be a church. Let's continue and, and, and become more involved and, and, and serious about being a church who loves and appreciates one another because the living God has claimed us, folks, has claimed us as a household, his household, and to be a pillar and support of his truth. Now, you can't quit any higher order in this world than that. That's the fundamental mission of the church.
God willing, next week we will look at the fundamental message of the church. Shall we pray? Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have had it not only written originally, but you have preserved your truth down through the ages. Even though many times evil men, kings and rulers and, and governments have tried to eradicate your truth, but you have preserved it. That's a miracle in itself. And we thank you for that. And here we are living in a nation where the word of God is freely available. And we've read it this morning and been challenged with your truth. But Lord, more than that, you have designed your truth to be upheld and supported and propagated by local churches such as this. Well, Father, help us to be aware of the solemnity of who we are as a church so that toward one another and toward this household, your household, we will grow together and we will be a true support and pillar of your truth. Well, Father, you have promised us that your word, your truth, will always do what it was designed to do in the lives of people. It will not return to you void. And so, Father, use us, we pray, to support and uphold it. Help us that we would never detract from it and go loose on some of those truths that you make plain. So, Father, take care of us, watch over us this week in our homes, in our workplaces. Protect us, we pray. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the living God, and the people of God said, Amen.